All right, so yeah, we're going to be in Esther. We're going to be three and four today, so we do have some ground to cover. So what we're going to do is, um, I'm going to read just, a, a, we'll have to do it in smaller sections because I don't want to read a whole big chunk and have us forget things. We're going to read in smaller sections, um, but we're going to do one of those things where we'll read and then we'll go right into a flashback <laughs> right afterwards. Because there's, just as, as, as background, remember we've been, oh, we've already done the first couple chapters of Esther and Esther is laid out very much in a narrative way. Um, so it's a bit of a change. You know, we've been reading, let's say, Romans on, on Sunday with, with Tyler. And Romans is laid out. It's, it's structured like a lot of the epistles are structured. It's, it's, a, it's a theological kind of, we're going from here to here to here, and we're making an argument and laying out, you know, some, some doctrine, and it's laid out that way. Um, when we, sometimes when we switch, we've got to remember that we're reading something a little different. So this is more of a narrative. It's a history in the Bible. So it's laid out like a story. And we talked about how, you know, last week, how the, the writer who, of Esther, who we think might be Mordecai, but it doesn't say for sure who it was, they did a great job under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, laying this out as a really exciting and kind of compelling story. And you can see the story go from point to point. And there's, hey, here's the world. That's kind of what we did in the first two chapters is this is the setting. This is the world. It's kind of painting this picture for you of how strange and uh, kind of dangerous this world that Esther and Mordecai are being brought into is. And then in these chapters, we're going to kind of get the, the rising tension, I guess you'd call it, or the conflict to the story, where all of a sudden it's introducing these elements where we realize, uh oh, this is where the our, our, our characters, I guess, in the story, they're not characters like they're fiction, but the people in the story that we're going to follow, where they're going to start encountering the personal conflict that's going to happen. And that's what happens here beginning in chapter three. So I'm just going to read the first couple verses, and then we'll get into that. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and would not, uh, when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. So we have the kind of first big moment of direct conflict. So far, things have been happening around Mordecai and Esther, and, and Esther has kind of been pulled into the court now as one of the king's, you know, that she's been pulled into this kind of basically harem that the king is, is building, and, and that's adding danger and tension for her. But so far, Mordecai has been kind of able to be himself, and we talked yesterday, or yesterday, we talked last week, last time that we did this, about how they were kind of hiding out. Their, their identity wasn't really revealed, and so he's in a bit of a safer spot, but that's going to start to change. And there's a, a detail that's really important to the story that gets revealed here that we, we need to point out to us, but it would have been obvious to people when this story was originally told. You gotta remember, these things are written down so that they can be retold, and, and the, this is a story that would be brought out around Purim. We're gonna talk about that holiday as we get farther into um, the book of Esther, but this is a story that would be told over and over orally to remind people this is what God did. And when we would get to this part, the storyteller would say, and okay, then there's, there's Haman the Agagite, and we read, yeah, Haman the Agagite, okay, whatever. That's a big deal in that story, and there's a reason for that. You have these two characters, Haman, who's descended from Agag, and remember Mordecai is descended from Kish, which means that he's a descendant of Saul. We found that out in, in the first couple chapters. Now, this is a very big deal. These are two rivals. It's almost as if you have like a blood feud going on historically between these people. And we find that out in 1 Samuel. I'm going to read a chunk of 1 Samuel that's going to kind of act as a flashback for us. We have to go back and dig this up because we're not always as familiar. But this is something that people hearing this story would have immediately thought of when you said Haman's an Agagite and Mordecai is a descendant of Kish. This is where their mind would have gone. So I'm going to read from 1 Samuel 15, verses 7 through 11, and then skipping down to verse 32. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. 
Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. Skipping now to verse 32. Then Samuel said, Bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came to him cautiously. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. The Old Testament got kind of metal sometimes, as the kids would say. So, yeah, um, this is the background between these two families, right? There is a literal blood feud that has gone on. And Agag's family, the fact that Saul spared Agag the king, was the beginning of really the downfall of Saul's dynasty. This is where, in, in 1 Samuel, we see the, the wheels begin to come off for Saul because he disobeys the commandment of the Lord. He doesn't completely eliminate the Amalekites. He has reasons for that. And you have to go back and read the story to kind of see the whole thing play out. And Samuel directly confronts him and says, why did you do that? I told you what to do and you've disobeyed. And the Lord is going to count that against you. That, that's, you've, you've done a bad thing that's going to allow these people to continue. And by literally allowing them to continue, we see that their line carried on. And that's why we have Haman here in this story is because Mordecai's, you know, ancestors didn't do what they were supposed to do. And they allowed these people to continue threatening God's people. So we see that there's this immediate conflict. There's ancestral bitterness between these people. And it kind of almost in the story sets these two guys up as destined to clash, right? It's one of these things where you're, it's at the beginning of a movie or a book you're reading. And the, you can already see these two characters. It's like they get put into a phone booth and they both have a knife. Well, somebody is not coming out of that phone booth, right? There's going to be a conflict here because these two guys can't allow the other guy to walk away. Some, we're going to have to settle this, right? And, and they are kind of recognizing that. And that's where this conflict is coming from. Mordecai is not going to bow down to an Agagite, right? Think about that. Yeah, he's, uh, yeah, I'm hidden and I know it's wise for me to not make a big deal, but there is just no way I'm going to be able to do homage to this guy. Do you, do you understand? He's my, my daddy's 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 grandpappy, right? Could have been king if it wasn't for this guy, basically, is how he would feel. And for, you know, Haman, it's almost the same thing. It's like, Oh, he won't bow to me, and you're telling me he's a descendant of Saul? Do you know what those people did? Right, to, right from his perspective, he'd say, do you, do you understand what they did to my family? There's this tension that would go on between them. Now, this thing that Haman was trying to receive, right, this homage, this honor, that's, for Persian kings, there was a requirement that very literally almost like a worship be paid to them. It was so over the top that even other pagan cultures looked at it and said, that's really weird that you guys do that. We don't treat our kings that way. And so, in a sense, the king has given this to Haman and said, hey, since you're kind of my guy, you, other people also have to treat you in this way. They have to give you this exaggerated kind of worshipful attention that they have to pay to you. So it's not just, you know, don't think of it as, oh my gosh, Mordecai, like just bow, dude. It's just a custom. It, it was kind of a really over-the-top, exaggerated thing that he, I think, and again, the, the, it doesn't say specifically, right? And we're going to see this through Esther. It's not going to tell you, should Mordecai have done that or not, right? It's just going to say, this is what happened. Mordecai chose at this point that this was the line that he was going to draw. He wasn't going to be able to do it. And here's the things that followed from that. Now, so far, remember, they've been able to stay out of this court intrigue. They've been able to stay out of these problems. And we even read right at the end of chapter two, there's been some serious things going on in the court. There's attempted assassinations and people are getting executed. All kinds of stuff is going on around them and they've been able to stay out of that. But this situation is what is going to draw them into that in a way that they're not going to be able to avoid. But it is important to watch the way that Esther and Mordecai are going to handle these situations. From here, it's almost like we're going to start and the hill, it's just going to go downhill from here. They're, they're getting sucked deeper and deeper in. The, the stakes are rising and getting, the, the danger is growing. And as that all happens, the way that they handle these situations are really important for us to pay attention to. They're going to do what they have to do. They're going to try and obey the Lord at every turn, but they're also not going to allow themselves to get sucked into all of the stuff that's going on in the court, all the power games and the drama and the corruption and the awful things that are going on. They're going to choose to obey the Lord and not take part in those things. And that this is going to be important for us to see because there is a way for us as believers to stand for what God is asking us to do, to do what's right, to not compromise, but to still do that without giving into the flesh and doing that in a way where we end up kind of just being like the people that we're supposed to be different from. 
how are we supposed to handle our real enemies, right? And that's, that's the situation Mordecai finds himself in. This is not, a, it's not an enemy like, you know, sometimes we have an enemy where, you know, there's just this one person at the office that I don't really like their personality. That's unfortunate, but that's not an enemy, right? That's not this situation he's in. He's in a situation where this is a person who wants him literally dead. And this is a person that Mordecai would be justified in saying, you know what, I can't, we can't leave this guy around. He's a threat to us. There's a serious danger in this situation. How do you handle that? When you have somebody who really has it in for you, they desire your harm. How are you supposed to deal with that as a Christian? Well, there is a way to deal with it. And you know what? Even if maybe we don't have that situation going on in our life, there's also a way to, for us to handle those people that we just really disagree with, right? There's a godly ways that we can do what's right and also stand for what is right. And, and that's what we're going to kind of see from the rest of these two chapters. So here's the difficult situation. Mordecai, Everybody, tell, the king tells everybody, you need to bow down and give Haman this exaggerated honor. Haman gets elevated to this place, right? All of a sudden, now there's this guy who has authority that's been given him from the king. It's legitimate authority. And Mordecai decides, I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to make a big deal out of it. He, you know, notice that he doesn't seem like he was, you know, shooting his mouth off and telling everybody, I will absolutely not. He just was quietly saying, no, I'm not going to do it. And people start asking him, dude, what are you doing? Like, this is the thing. You do this thing. And he says, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm a Jew. That's not how we don't worship people. We worship God. Well, yeah, but you need to do it because that's what the king said. Oh, I'm just, I'm not going to do it. And it started causing problems, not because Mordecai was out there, you know, maybe being a loud mouth, but because it seems like he was just quietly refusing to do what was expected of him. And that's going to begin to cause him a problem when Haman sees this. Um, he's upset. says so he's filled with fury. So let's see what happens. Verse 6. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries." So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. So Haman sees Mordecai's kind of quiet defiance, and that's kind of what it is, right? He's saying, no, I, I recognize that you have authority, but I also have the ability to not listen to you and to obey you. That's the option that I'm going to take here. He chooses to not obey this command that Mordecai feels is wrong. I'm not going to go against my conscience and worship a man, right? And by doing that, Haman is not content just to directly confront this issue, but Haman decides, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get mine. We've waited long enough with these people, and I, we get the sense that it seems like he finds out and maybe that's even what triggers it. He, it's, it's almost like he's upset that, okay, he won't bow down. What's the matter with this guy? And then someone whispers in his ear, well, you know why? It's because he's a Jew. And all of a sudden, him says, oh, he's a Jew. Really? That's interesting. Maybe it's about time that we fix this. Maybe it's about time that we get some revenge for what happened to my people way back in the day. Here's what I'm going to do. He won't bow to me? Fine. All of them are going to go down for that, right? He burns with anger. It says he has, he's filled with fury. Now, we're going to see Haman's personal issue of rage and hubris, I guess would be the word, his arrogance and his, his anger are going to be a pretty serious problem for him throughout this story. Job 5.2 says, Wrath kills a foolish man and envy slays a simple one. And uh, no spoilers, but that's how this is going to end up in this story for, for Haman. He finds out that Mordecai is Jewish and he just decides, well, if I tell the king that these people are a threat to the entire kingdom, I can get him and everybody all in one go because I'm the second in command. I have the king's ear. I can present this in a way that the king will listen to me and we'll just take care of this legally. We'll just get it all sewn up and get a decree and then I'll go out and do whatever I want to do. Now, 
he, in doing that, he basically says, well, these people are a threat to your kingdom. They don't obey the laws. They're a, they should be exterminated. And he calls him even the enemy of the Jews, which I think is so interesting that, you know, that doesn't just describe Haman. There's always people like this, where they come up in every generation, people who it seems like it's their specific mission that they just want to take God's people out. Why? You can never really find out. You kind of, you, you wonder and you ask and you say, well, this is really interesting. You have this weird problem that you just have with the Jews, just with God's people. Why is that? It doesn't make sense. You don't act like that to other people. It's just the Jews that give you a problem. And there's just this hatred for some reason. And it, it comes up every, every couple generations, it seems like. It shouldn't be surprising to us. Um, it's spiritual and it's demonic, according to scripture. Anti-Semitism is an ancient evil that occurs everywhere the Israelites are. Wherever God's people are, you will find people who are haters of God's people, who are enemies of the Jews. Satan has always been seeking from the beginning to eliminate God's chosen people because he, he knows that if he can derail God's plan of salvation and, and, and rescue for the world, that he can, he can do that by taking out God's people, or so he thinks, right? And uh, we've even talked in some, in some past lessons where Pastor Tyler has taught us through and shown us how there's times where, because remember, Satan doesn't know everything, right? He's not uh, um, omniscient. I always forget which one goes to which. He's not omniscient. He, he's not aware of all of the things that God knows. He only knows certain things. He has a long memory and he knows just enough. So he keeps trying the same strategy over and over thinking, well, maybe this time I can, maybe this is the generation where I can get rid of the Messiah. No, not this one. Okay, maybe this is where I'll be able to bring this, this leader, this ruler who will be able to get, no, not this one. And he keeps trying this strategy over and over. And we see this throughout history. It's very important that we're aware that this isn't just a natural thing when this happens, right? There are people, people are always gonna be fighting. We study history, people are, have issues with each other, they fight wars, horrible things are done between people and that's all tragic and, and we should expect that, the Bible says. But the Bible also says we should expect something unique, which is that there's gonna be unique anger and hatred towards God's people. And we should not think that that's something natural that we're able to coexist easily with as believers. When you begin to hear someone lead the conversation in the direction of, well, you know, there's this certain people. Let me exhort you, Christian, run away from that person. There is absolutely no alliance we can make with people where that is part of their attitude is, and you know what else? We got to figure out this Jewish thing. Please do not spend any more time in their presence because that doesn't come from a good place, right? That's not just an idea people have. That is literally something of the enemy where he uses and manipulates people to get what he wants, which is to remove the people that God has said, those ones specifically are mine, right? And so this is something that we're aware of. And it's interesting that in this scheme, Haman kind of keeps adding things to the pile, right? Well, I, I want to get rid of Mordecai. How could I do that? Well, I could get rid of all the Jews. And then, you know what? I could get all the Jews' stuff and a bunch of that stuff would be mine and I could give some to the king. So he's kind of creating this elaborate scheme. Part of this scheme, he says, is, well, listen, you know, king, it's going to be really good for you because we're going to kill them all. We're going to take all their stuff and then I'm going to give a bunch of this stuff into the king's treasury. And that seems like one of the things that caught the king's attention. I tried to do uh, the math and the conversions here. And it seems like if you tape it out, the talents, if you convert that, it's a, it's a weight measurement a talent is. And so it's about 375 tons of silver, which at my best calculations is about $300 million, or it was as of Monday or Tuesday. Um, so that's a lot of money, right? That he's saying, listen, we're going to get all this pillage, essentially. We're going to loot all these people. And then here's this amount that I'm going to promise to you. And the implication is, if I can take anything above that, I'll just go ahead and keep that, right? So they're essentially splitting out the loot that they're going to get from removing these people from the kingdom. Now, this looks really bad, right? You're reading this and you're like, oh my goodness, is somebody going to stop these guys? Like, they're just going to get allowed to do this? But we have to remember, and I'm going to remind us a couple times throughout these chapters, that God is in complete control of this situation. And remember, in Esther, we don't see God's name mentioned, which is really interesting, right? It's, the, as far as I'm aware, the only book in Scripture where you don't have God's name actually named. But you see God throughout the book because we know that the Lord is in control of these things. When it says that Haman was promoted, that was not an accident. Right? Was that something that God, oh, God wasn't paying attention then and it just squeaked past? No, that's not how it works, right? God knew that that was going to happen and God allowed Haman to be promoted to get the ear of the king, to be in this kind of almost invulnerable position in the court where I guess the king just listens to Haman. Man, you see how we all have to bow to him now? God knew that that was going to happen. He allowed 
Haman to scheme against his chosen people. God was in control of the lots. I think it's really interesting. It says they cast lots, which is like, you think of like drawing straws or throwing dice. It's a divination way that they would try and see what the gods wanted, right? And then the Israelites did it and they were literally asking God, Lord, will you show us what we're supposed to do? It was just a way to try and ask God to tell you when you should do or what you should do. And so they're casting these lots to try and see, well, what would be the auspicious time to do this? And it keeps getting delayed. It keeps getting delayed. And finally, they get a good time. And then when they, they say, okay, now we're going to start, when should we actually do it? There's like this big gap of time that the lot selects, which we were going to find out is going to be really important because it's going to give Esther and Mordecai time to figure out what they're supposed to do. The Lord is in control of this, right? This is not an accident how this whole scheme plays out. Proverbs 16.33 says, the lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the Lord. And I'm gonna kinda, I'm gonna press in on this because this is really important that we understand this. Either God is in control of everything or he isn't, Amen. right? It's, it, we, we gotta get this settled in our mind. It's either one way or the other. Either the Lord knows what's going on and he is really omnipresent and omnipotent and omniscient. He understands all these things even better than we do or he doesn't. It doesn't go, you know, different ways depending on whether our circumstances are different, right? There's not days where, well, today God missed a couple and they got through the goalkeeper and they're in the net and that's a problem for us. That's not how it works, right? And since we know God is in control, we know that from Scripture, right? And, and this is, you know, we're going to get into Romans. So we're going to get into the, the theological details of what does that mean and what does that mean for us. We're going we're gonna to talk about that. But let's just start with the simple things we know. We know God's in control from Scripture, and so we need to constantly remind ourselves that when we feel in danger and we feel uncomfortable and we feel unready in situations that we face, that we are still in his will. Those situations didn't come from us. I was, remember, I was in this really difficult place one time in my life and a, a believer encouraged me and they said, listen, everything that comes to you comes through the hand of the Lord. Do you think that this thing hopped around or over the Lord's hand? Well, somehow this person did something. No, that's not how it works. If it's coming to me, the Lord has allowed it. Now, does that mean that the awful, tragic things that happened to us, the Lord has inflicted them on us? No, read Job, right? Don't be that guy, right? The, the, God was not happy with Job's friends when they were saying things like that. But it does mean that God knew, and it does mean that God has allowed. And so we can rest in those things. Unless we've heard from God that we need to move or avoid or run away from something, we can trust that we're supposed to be here where we are right now. And that's what we're going to see for, for Mordecai and for Esther is they needed to kind of get to this place of understanding, okay, this thing that's happening is not an accident and the Lord has a plan in it, even if it doesn't look very good for us right now. So, they're cooking up this scheme together, right? And Haman has the king's ear, it seems like, pretty completely. He's able to just kind of say, hey, here's a thing. What if we did this? And the king's like, yeah, sounds good. You said there was money involved? Great. Let's go ahead and take care of that. His trust was so complete that he gives him the king's authority. That's what that signet is. It's essentially this, they would use it to stamp in, into wax and make seals. It was a way of saying, I have the full authority to do this thing I'm doing. And if the king gives that ring to you, now you have the king's full authority. Right? I don't know how, what we would compare that to nowadays. But it's, it's a way essentially of, of having full state authority and control. And Haman has control of that now. And it seems that the king did this without even really hearing who the people were. It almost seems like he wasn't aware really of how extensive the Jewish population in his land was anymore. You've got to remember this guy, he's presiding over so many different kingdoms and, and places that he's literally making these different rulers who are kind of subcontracting to, to cover these different provinces because his empire is so big. So he, I don't think he seems from the story to really have understood exactly what it was he was doing. He just hears from Haman, well, there's these bad guys. Okay, sure, take care of them. Maybe thinking, well, there's some, a couple rebels or some guys that need to get rooted out. Yeah, there was just an assassination attempt. Let's crack down. It's kind of how he's approaching it. He wasn't aware of how extensive this population was, and he also wasn't aware that there were some people who were Jews who were in his own household. So this plan, this evil plan goes forward. Verse 12 says, Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps, and to the governors over all the provinces, and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. 
A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. And no kidding, right? Imagine, you just all of a sudden, and this is, you, we see kind of the organization that is going on here, right? And that's kind of how it's being presented in the story, is you realize, man, these guys, you know, it's almost like the evil empire kind of thing. Like, these guys have it together. They're sending out these couriers, and they've got this calendar, and they've got, okay, on this day, we're going to get rid of all the Jews. It's a very organized, kind of scary thing. You'd be seeing the full power of their empire going to effect when all of a sudden you hear, oh, there's this edict and it just shows up in everybody's town across this massive empire at the same time saying, hey, this is what we're all going to do together. That's a, that's a huge amount of power that they would be able to wield. You know, nowadays we just think, we don't think about that because we can press click and everybody gets the email. But back then to be able to send an instruction and get it done in so many different places showed that this man was very powerful. And it was frightening for people. It says that the whole citadel is in confusion. Everybody's like, what do you mean? Yeah, they're killing the Jews. The Jews? I know lots of Jews. There's lots of Jews in the empire. Yeah, well, they're killing them all. Why? I don't know. Haman said they were going to do it, right? Like everybody's confused because it, it probably, it's not as if it made sense, right? These were people that were a part of Persian society and all of a sudden now they're going to be eliminated. And it says, meanwhile, the king and Haman sit down to drink. They've signed away the lives of, you know, we don't really, we're not really sure the number of people, but a lot of people. And they close that with a party, right? Which just seems like the Persian way to do these things. Not very nice people. Proverbs 4, 14 through 18 says, Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they do not sleep unless they have done evil, and their sleep is taken away unless they make someone fall. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the just is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter unto the perfect day. So, just a good reminder, right, when we see these things in Esther, like, listen, don't let people tell you, oh, yeah, that's right, you Christians, you know, you're just like Pollyanna people, you just think the world's all nice. That's not what we read in our Bible. Our Bible's filled with all kinds of crazy stuff happening, right? You've got people getting hacked to pieces right in the beginning, and now you've got this, right, this horrible plot that's getting cooked up by these people who have all the power, right? They've got all the control on their side of the table and they're going to be able to do this if they want to. They can snap their fingers and then have a party and say, now let's just kill all these people. That's not fair. That's not just. It's not right, but it's going to happen. And that's what the Bible teaches us is that humans are sinful. And if that's true, then we should expect to see these things all through the world. Unfortunately, as it is now, without the Lord, we should expect to see oppression and suffering and injustice and corruption and horrible things. That shouldn't surprise us, right? We shouldn't be in a place as Christians of saying, well, no, that doesn't make sense. Of course it makes sense. That's what we should see. And we see that from the beginning of Scripture. You start to read right before the flood. It says already God said, well, I regret that I've made these people because of the horrible things they're doing to each other, right? It shouldn't surprise us, but sometimes it does. And I think what's interesting is sometimes it surprises us and then we don't really know how to respond and we start getting all these temptations that come in, right? Imagine Esther and Mordecai, they see, especially Mordecai, right? Because I feel like, you know, Esther, it seems like, in fact, we're going to see, Esther's kind of hidden right now in the palace and she's not clued into what's going on. She's got this kind of secluded life that's happening. Mordecai is out there in the street kind of seeing what's going on and, and he's got this conflict going on with Haman that he's aware of. So as soon as this edict gets posted, he's going to know what's going to happen. And you've got to imagine how tempting this is for him to fight fire with fire, right? Oh, okay, so this is how he wants to play? Well, the last assassination attempt didn't go so well, but I can figure it out, right? Can you imagine how, how easy that would be for him to start thinking that way? Okay, so he's going to threaten my people. I guess I've got to threaten his people. What are we going to do? How are we going to take, how are we going to get some power? How are we going to go prepare ourselves to resist this, right? That would have been his immediate thought because, well, you, you're a guy. You want to fix this, right? You want to find a solution to this problem. But what we're going to see instead is that they choose to step out in faith and allow the Lord to fight their battles for them. And that's where they're going to actually be vindicated and where they're actually going to be rescued. Is Rather than grabbing onto this on their own, they're going to choose to take the step of allowing the Lord to do what He wants to do. And how that's going to look is a little bit different maybe from how what our first thought would have been, but maybe it's a good thing for us to learn. Starting chapter 4 and verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes 
and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. So, Mordecai realizes that Haman is holding all the cards at this point. He has a position of prominence. He's been given the king's signet ring. The edict's gone out. Remember when we would read, sometimes you read in the book of Daniel, it keeps saying it's the law of the Medes and Persians and it can't be changed, right? That's literally what they would do. Is they, remember, they would have these massive parties and they would write down all the things they were going to do. And once it's written down, that's the law now, right? You can try and make another law to do something different, but you can't change this law. So it's been written down and he knows, okay, well, that, I see it on the wall. It's not going anywhere. This is what's going to happen. They're going to do this. And he realizes that God at this point is the only person who's going to be able to save his people. He's not, there's nothing that he's going to be able to do, right? He doesn't have a position of prominence. He doesn't have the king's ear. Uh, he, he doesn't even have contact anymore with his relative who's off in the king's harem. He can't even see her really or, or get access to her. He's pretty much all alone trying to figure out what he's going to do. And so his response is, you know, instead of planning some sort of counter scheme or arming up all the Jews to, to resist, right? he decides in faith that God is going to provide a way of escape and he mourns, which is a demonstration of intense grief. And this, I, this, by doing this, what they'd be demonstrating is literally saying, I am totally, I've been brought down and completely humbled before the Lord and there's nothing else that I'm going to be able to do. That's the depth of my grief, right? You would see, you see Job do this. When the Lord removes things from him, Job just sits on an ash pile and says, well, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away, right? It's this sense of, okay, I don't have anything left to do other than just sit here and accept what's happened and, and visibly demonstrate that I'm a broken person. And that's, that's what Mordecai is doing. Now, this says this is the thing he did. Again, I'm sure there was these temptations. Can't you imagine? He's probably walking back and forth in his house a little bit, you know, imaginarily trash-talking Haman like the way that we do, right? He's saying, well, this is what I would say, and this is what I would do, and here's what, I, you know, you, you think hacking to pieces was bad, right? He's, he's, in his mind, he's probably thinking all these things, and, well, this, and, and, you know, maybe he's praying some of these prayers that we pray. He's like, Lord, do you, um, have you missed this? Do you have any idea what's going on, right? You read the Psalms, and you see all these Psalms that David would pray, where he'd say, Lord, um, did I do any of this stuff that they said I did? I did not, Lord. Look, here's my list of things I have not done. He, you know, David would get so upset, you read in the Psalms, that he would just lay it out in front of the Lord and say, I didn't do this, and they said I did that, you know? And, and we have that go on in our hearts when stuff like this happens, right? And I mean stuff that's more than just an annoyance, right? You get caught off in traffic. Hopefully you're not praying an imprecatory psalm, I hope, right? But, you know, when you get to this time where, man, Lord, this person has done something evil and they've done it to me, right? Like now I'm out of control and they're in control and I don't know what to do. When you have those moments with the Lord, you, you pray honestly and that's okay, right? I think I'm sure that that's part of what Mordecai was doing. But what is his final response? He settles himself in his heart around, okay, I, I'm not going to be able to do anything. And the Lord's going to have to do something here. And that's what that fasting and the sackcloth and those demonstrations would have signified to other people. Um, and, you know, when we get faced with these situations, we have these, we're, we're human, right? We don't, as Christians, we don't have to conceal. And we have a bad habit sometimes, I think, of, this attitude, you know, he's doing this out in the street and it would have been awkward. You know what I mean? Like that's kind of what the sackcloth is. It's, it's like you're out in the street. Everybody else is doing their thing, grocery shopping, going to work, and you're in the middle of the street. And we shouldn't think he's just kind of sitting there like this is Eastern expression of grief, right? When you see, you know, you see video of, of somewhere in the Middle East where someone has died and what a, a Middle Eastern funeral is like, right? It's an intense open display of how you feel. And that's what he's doing. It says that he's, you know, crying out and he's sitting there in the street, right? It would have been awkward. People are like, my gosh, what is the matter with Mordecai, man? Like, gee, you know, it's, 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 you're showing 
the Lord has put me in this place where I, I used to be here and now I'm here, right? It's, he's, he's being vulnerable with his emotions. That's okay to do, right? Like, it's, it's all right to be honest about how we feel when we're in these situations. But when we're faced with these impossible situations, instead of looking to our own resources or our own intelligence to find a solution, we need to be looking towards the Lord. A lot of times the Lord is going to provide from those places. He's about to use Esther, as we're going to see, to save God's people using a lot of her own resources and opportunities and her wisdom and Mordecai's plan. And the Lord's going to use all those things, but it's going to be in his timing and it's going to be in his way. And so many times we're tempted as soon as we get in one of these situations that's uncomfortable, we say, well, this is uncomfortable. What do I have at my disposal to change this? Right? What can I throw at this? What strategy do I have? Who do I know that I can call? Right? How can I fix this? And that's a natural response, but it's not always the response that the Lord wants us to have, at least not at first. I think a lot of times the first thing the Lord wants you to do is just say, hey, let's, let's talk about this. Right? Why don't you come to me, pour out your heart about it, explain to me what's going on, and then I'll tell you what I want to do. Right? And if we, if we skip that step of checking in with the Lord and asking the Lord how to feel about it, asking the Lord what the next step is, a lot of times we're going to run off or to do something that seems good to us and that might, in, in the flesh, it might try and solve the problem. But how, haven't we done that? And sometimes that wasn't the right thing. <laughs> we come back and say, okay, Lord, I'm sorry. I tried once. Now I'd like to, let's talk about it and let's see what you want me to do, right? And so it's important for us to not skip that step. Daniel did the same thing in facing similar circumstances, right? Daniel's stuck in Persia and in Babylon, doesn't want to be there, doesn't, you know, why are we here, Lord? But his response was the same response. In chapter 9 of Daniel, starting in verse 3 through 5, he says, I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Skipping to verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. And so this is Daniel, right? He's in a spot and he, you know, again, this is uncomfortable. They're, remember, they're separated. Whether And we don't know whether this is a good choice or a bad choice, maybe, but they're not at home. <laughs> they're out here in this other empire, you know, exiled still not where they're, they should be. And they've got to feel that right now, especially, right? Of, hey, man, maybe we should have gone back to Jerusalem. <laughs> like, this wasn't a good idea. And but the response of grief is you, you're looking back to the Lord and saying, Lord, let's look at me and see how I've messed up, right? Why am I, why am I here? And maybe, maybe you're there and it's no fault of your own, and that's okay, right? Not everything bad that happens to us is because we've sinned, right? We look at Job, right? We read Job and the answer at the end is the Lord said, no, that's not it. I have allowed it, and no, it's not because Job messed up or he sinned. It's because I've allowed it, right? Sometimes just these things come into our lives, and we don't need to search through our lives wondering what punishment is this for. But sometimes it's one of those that, oh, nope, I made this one, right? This one I did, and I know exactly why we're here, right? And at that, at that time, it's good to come to the Lord and say, Lord, before we get all on the situation, can I just admit that this is where we're at? And, and I know why. <laughs> and, and, you know, forgive me for what I've done. That's the heart that we need to have. Sometimes our circumstances are there to remind us of our dependence on the Lord, right? When everything's good, right? How long can we coast along thinking, oh, I kind of got this, Lord. We're good. You can take a day off and I'll just kind of take it from here, right? We can get that attitude sometimes with the Lord because things are good. And so we get this mistaken attitude that we're taking care of it, right? But then when things begin to be a problem, all of a sudden we realize, oh, I've been dependent on the Lord this whole time. <laughs> and I just didn't realize until now when things got difficult. So this is Mordecai's response, and Esther hears about this, and it seems like she's so secluded in this harem. Remember, she's not allowed to leave now. She's, this is where she lives from now on, and she doesn't know what's going on. She hasn't seen the edict. She hasn't heard, so she kind of has to send out this guy as a messenger and say, hey, what, what's, the matter with the, what's the matter with, you know, this guy? And, and he goes, and Mordecai's like, what's your problem? Do you not know? And, and they kind of are sending these messages back and forth, and she figures out and gets informed of the king's proclamation, and then you know, she, Mordecai kind of says, this is what's going on. This is the sum of money, kind of brings her up to date. And then uh, beginning in verse eight, Mordecai is going to kind of bring her to a point where he says, hey, you, you're going to have to play a role here. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction. 
that he might show it to Esther and explain to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. So Mordecai sends this guy back. He says, okay, yeah, Esther wants to know why I'm sitting here doing this. Let me explain. Sends him back with a copy of the decree, gives him these instructions and basically says, listen, this was the plan. The circumstances have changed. <laughs> the plan was for you to keep quiet and us to just see if we could sail through and that's not gonna work anymore. You need to do something. You need to take that position that you've been given and use it on the behalf of your people is what he's going to ask her to do. He's going to tell her to go to the king, which is not a thing that would have been very easy. And she's going to explain that in a second. Before he told her, let's, let's keep this secret. He's realizing that now this is maybe a way that God's going to protect his people. And I don't think we should necessarily see this as some sort of contradiction, right? I don't think it's not as if maybe what Mordecai was doing before was wrong and now he's doing the right thing. There's different timing for this. Esther going to the king is not a sure thing. It's not as if all of a sudden Mordecai's being fleshly, right? Okay, here's, now I'm going to use this solution, right? He's spent time before the Lord and he's realized, I, and I get the sense almost that he's maybe been spending his time in prayer and all of a sudden the Lord tells him, hey, you need to, here's what you need to tell Esther. And he realizes, oh my goodness. Like before, this was the way we were handling this, but now this is what the Lord wants us to do. He's, he, now he's been able to spend that time with the Lord and hear what the next step is going to be. Esther going to the king is not this sure thing. It's going to take risk. It's going to require trust in God's hand. It's going to require faith. It's not just a, a rash step that she's taking, you know, because they're not going to be able to trust the Lord. Now, this is where this can get a little bit difficult, and good Christians can disagree on this subject of how are you supposed to know the will of the Lord? And a lot of times that's just down to our personality. You know, you have some people where this is the way that they've walked with the Lord for a long time and they've gotten used to, this is their relationship with the Lord and they've heard from the Lord and they've learned his voice and it's easy for them to do that. And there's some people where that's not the way their relationship with the Lord works. And there's room for some difference in that and that's okay. But I do want to make sure that we don't forget the things that scripture says about it because there are two different things sometimes that need to be included in this. How can we know the will of the Lord? Does God have a will for your life? Can you act on your own, right? Are you just kind of, well, I do whatever, and because I'm a Christian, it's okay, you know, God, God's fine with that. Or are you supposed to just wait on God and kind of do nothing? Well, I haven't seen a neon sign on the side of the road that said this is the plan, so we just don't do anything yet. I don't think either of those are really what Scripture says. Scripture has examples of people stepping out in faith and obedience. It also has examples of people waiting on the Lord and seeing what the Lord's going to do. Both of those are present. We're called to be so intimate with the Holy Spirit that we know His will and we're ready to act as soon as He calls us to act, but we're also able to wait if He hasn't told us to do anything yet. And both of those things are important as we're learning to hear the voice of the Lord. We also have to be really careful that we don't judge our brothers or sisters' actions according to our own comfort level or our own personality. Right? And I see that happen a lot of times. I'm guilty of this sometimes. Is you see somebody and maybe they're a newer believer and they, you know, if you've, you've ever gone evangelizing with a young believer and you're doing your thing, right? Okay, we're going to do this. We're going to talk to these people and you're approaching it the way that you approach it. And all of a sudden they just, man, they just go for it and you are not comfortable. You're like, ah, I wouldn't have said it that way. Wouldn't have chosen to pray with or for that person in the street here like we're doing right now. Like you're feeling this feeling, right? And, and I start feeling, maybe I just need to tell them to chill. And every time the Lord will say, no, just because you're not comfortable doesn't mean I'm uncomfortable, right? Just because you're not ready to take that step of faith doesn't mean that's not what I told them to do, right? And I'll remember, hey, Lord, you know, the Lord is using us differently and it's okay. We're called to different things. It's all right. If I'm called over here and this person is called to do a totally different thing that looks very different to me. You know, some people have the faith to just uproot their family and go move to Africa and be a missionary. That's not what the Lord has told me to do. So it would be wrong for me to say, well, they did that. I have to go take my family to Africa. But it would also be wrong to say, what a foolish thing that they're taking their family to Africa. Well, I'm not called to do that. It's not, I don't get to pass judgment on the Lord's servant like that, right? So we have to keep both in mind. A lot of decisions in our lives are guided by just biblical wisdom and our sanctified desires. You know, you're, you're a believer. You're saved. The Lord is regenerating your heart. So there's a lot of times where you'll see a situation, you'll say, Lord, I wish it was like this. That doesn't seem right. And the Lord will say, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it isn't right. I want you to fix that. Go for it, right? There, there's desires that the Lord gives your heart that are good desires. Not all of our desires are bad anymore, right? That was before when we were in sin. Now, if you see a situation and you say, I feel like the Lord would want it to be like this, that's a good thing. You can pursue that. And sometimes 
We make decisions based on common sense. And that's okay, right? If we're in a situation and we say, I don't know, Lord, it just seems like today I'm going to buy American cheese, right? It's all right to make decisions based on that. That's all right. And I don't want you to feel, it's important that we not feel that that's somehow wrong, that as we go through life, we need to be paralyzed, not able to make a decision because we've not heard a specific thing from the Lord on every single thing. But I also want us to be careful and realize that there are some times when the Holy Spirit guides us to very specific actions, very specific actions. And sometimes those actions are not going to seem rational or super wise to other people. I'm sure we've been in this situation before. You, the Lord tells you, I want you to go ahead and do this. And you're like, oh, they're not going to think that's a good idea. <laughs> like, I, there's people around me that are going to say, what are you doing? That's weird. And I'm going to feel weird. And I'm going to have to tell them, oh, the Lord told me to do it. <laughs> I know it's, it looks a little crazy, but this is what the Lord told me to do. But that doesn't let us off the hook for obeying the Lord, right? Just because we can't reason it out in our own human minds doesn't mean that's not what the Lord's asking us to do. How many times have I had that thing where the Lord says, I want you to go over here and do this. And I'm like, Lord, I don't have any real reason to, do, to know that or to say that or to do that. And the Lord says, I know, but here's what I want you to do, right? There's been actions that I've taken or actions my family's taken that other people have directly come to us and said, yeah, that's a bad idea. You shouldn't do that. And I've said, yeah, I can see how you'd think that. <laughs> but, uh, and it makes sense to me because I'm looking at it from the outside. And I don't know, it doesn't look great to me, but I know that this is what the Lord's told me to do, right? And so there is room for both of those in our life. And we need to be sensitive to the Lord to make sure that we know the difference between what he's asking us to do. If there's a time where we feel the freedom of the Lord to act, then we should act in that and trust that the Lord's got us. Right? He's not going to, oh no, I, I didn't give them this specific sign about what they were supposed to do and, and they missed it. Or I hid this sign over here and they missed it. That's not how the Lord works. He's not going to hide those things from you. But then there's other times where we need to wait for a minute and say, you know what? I just don't feel peace to act yet. So I'm not going to do anything until I hear from the Lord. Both of those are okay. Romans chapter 8, verses 24 through 28 says, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is not seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do, or sorry, hope that is seen. It didn't make sense when I read it. Hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What do we learn from that? And Tyler will cover it, I'm sure, in much more detail here pretty soon. We, we learn that, hey, the Lord knows what the Lord's will is. And the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. The Holy Spirit is God, right? He, the Holy Spirit is aware. He has a will. He has intentions. He has desires. And he will communicate those to you if you're asking right? And it's okay if sometimes you say, Lord, I don't know what to pray here. I don't know what to ask for. I don't know what to do. The Bible says that the Spirit intercedes for us and He can give us what it is that He wants to give us, right? So we can trust Him. We don't have to be, if you're ever in a position as a believer where you're trying to make a decision and you're panicking and you're freaking out and you're worried, wait until you hear from the Lord. It's okay to ask the Lord and don't, don't be trying to make a decision in your own strength like that. It's all right. And also don't feel like that's from the Lord. Right? That's not how it, it sounds when you hear the Lord's voice. The Lord is going to give you peace about the decisions that you're making. So, Esther is in this now situation, and she's going to have to make some uh, really scary, really important decisions, beginning in verse 10. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for, for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So, 
you know, let's not think that Esther's new life is all super fun and romantic and successful. She's basically stuck in her room for 30 days, hasn't seen the king, hasn't heard from the king, king hasn't asked about her or anything like that, right? So she's basically stuck in this gilded prison kind of situation. And Mordecai says, listen, here's what you need to do. I've prayed about it, and I think that the Lord is going to use you to get us out of here. So you need to go to the king. And she's, this poor guy, this poor guy, he's going back and forth. He runs up to Esther. He's like, listen, so here's what Mordecai said. She's like, okay, you go back and tell him. And he's like, oh, I just told you. This is what he said, right? So he goes back. He's like, all right, so Esther says, do you not know that this is what the king, right? And of course he knows, right? Everybody knows that this is the rule that the king has. You don't go, and, and we can tell there was a lot of rules, right? Remember, he was in sackcloth, but it says he couldn't go past the king's gate because you don't go past the king's gate wearing sackcloth. Don't want to bum him out, right? So there was a lot of rules about who could go to the king and when. And one of those rules is, hey, you don't show up without an invitation. You don't just pop into the king's audience chamber and say, here I am, I just wanted to talk to you. That's not how it goes. You'll get killed for that. And she's aware of that, and so is uh, Mordecai. And maybe there's almost a little bit of frustration in that message. She's like, tell him, um, do you not, are you not aware? <laughs> like, this is how this works, right? And he hasn't asked for me in 30 days, so I'm not on his mind. I'm not showing up. And then Mordecai says, okay, now you tell her, and the poor guy's getting winded by now, but he goes back, right? And he delivers this message. He says, listen, yes, that's the law. That's the rule. But I think this is how the Lord is going to intervene. And if you don't take action here, if you don't step out in faith, then that's not going to shorten the arm of the Lord, but it is going to have some impact for you. Now, this is sometimes the way that walking with the Lord works. Each time God provides, we're excited, right? We're grateful. Look, the Lord, I didn't think this would ever happen. And then it happened. Look, look what happened. And we're super excited for a little bit. But then there's this new challenge or this new problem. And there's this temptation to think, okay, well, this one is really, like, it's different this time, right? This one's really bad. I don't know if we've, this, this is way different. I, there's no way that the Lord's going to be able to come through on this one. Now, look at all, all the things, the supernatural things that the Lord has done to put Esther in this position, right? The Lord has allowed the king to have this crazy idea that I'm going to get rid of my queen and this other crazy idea that I'm going to round up all these girls and bring them into the palace and I'm going to pick a new queen and Esther is one of those and then he picks her and now she's in this position not by accident, right? The Lord has taken all these steps and the Lord's protected her this whole time. It would have been very easy in this very dangerous environment she's in for something to go wrong and her to not have made it this far. That would have not been difficult. But here she is, the Lord has provided for her. But at this point, it seems like she's kind of reached this personal limit where she says, listen, I didn't ask to be here and I want out. I, I thank you very much that you think that I'm going to be the hero that's going to kind of come to the rescue here. But um, I didn't sign up <laughs> for risking my life, you know, running into the king's audience chamber and, and telling him this crazy story about some conspiracy against the Jews. No, thank you. Get somebody else is her response. Or at least it seems like that's her response, right? I am, I'm kind of trying to interpret this, but it really seems like she's basically saying, hey, no. And you get that from Mordecai's response, which is, okay, you can do that, but here's the consequences that are going to come there. And this is the temptation that we face when we struggle with a position the Lord puts us in, a place the Lord has allowed us to be, where we feel pushed beyond our own limits, or we feel like, Lord, I don't, I don't really want to be here. I didn't ask to be here. You're putting responsibilities on me, and people are looking to me, and things are going on that I did not want to be a part of. Get somebody else, Lord. Please, I don't want to be here, right? And we have these responses with the Lord. We feel inadequate to the task, and so we want out. But here's the thing is that that's a temptation for us to run away from a situation because it's risky, because it's scary. But we have to recognize, right, what did we say? Was that all an accident that she showed up there? Is there ever an accident with the Lord? Is there ever a time where the Lord says, whoa, whoa, wait a second. I wanted to put them there, but I wanted them to be prepared and they are not prepared. So we need to, no, that's not how the Lord works, right? The Lord doesn't make mistakes. If the Lord has allowed us to be in a situation where we feel unprepared, is that somehow mean that the Lord has failed? No, maybe we've failed and that can happen. Maybe we've gotten to a place where we should have been prepared and now we're not, Right? I, I should have been ready for this. I, sh I knew that this was coming up. I knew that this was a situation the Lord was going to put me in, and I didn't prepare, right? But do we get to turn to the Lord and say, well, Lord, I, I have failed, so therefore I have derailed your whole plan. You've got to get somebody else. That's not usually how it works with the Lord. A lot of times the Lord says, I know. Watch this, right? You have failed. I don't. And then he does something through you anyway, right? Because he has grace on you, and he just uses you even though you're not prepared. Happens all the time. 
But we're going to miss out on that if we allow our feeling of inadequacy or our feeling of, hey, I don't want to take this risk or I don't want to have this responsibility. I don't want to have people looking at me. I don't want to have this riding on me. If we allow that feeling to push us away from where the Lord has us, which is right in the middle here where we're going to have to exercise some faith now because we're not going to be able to accomplish this, right? Is, can Esther guarantee that she's going to be able to pull this off? No, she couldn't guarantee any of the other steps up to here. And this one really looks like a stretch. Why would the king want her to come back into the audience chamber? I mean, he didn't, he hasn't asked for her before. He may have totally forgotten who she is. This is kind of the way he goes. So this doesn't make sense, the step she's about to take. It's going to require a lot of faith. But Mordecai reminds her, hey, it's it's just possible that this is exactly why the Lord's put you here. It's possible the Lord knows what he's doing, right? Even though we didn't know what he was doing up to this point, maybe the Lord had a plan and maybe this is what it is. And when we see that, that reminder of, hey, it, it seems like the Lord is doing something here and we need to make sure that we're on board with what the Lord is doing, we need to not miss that. We don't want to run away and we can't forget that sometimes those situations, even if they come from other people doing something evil, right? It's not like I, it's not like, you know, okay, Lord, I didn't make any mistakes here. I haven't sinned to get me here. Other people have put me here. My back's up against the wall because of that person. I know their name. I know what they look like. And I don't want to be here, Lord. But did not the Lord allow that person to do those things? Right? Did somehow that person skip around the Lord's hand? I don't think so. If the Lord is in control and he's allowing this, then he's asking us to respond to him in obedience, whatever that looks like. Now, are there situations where the obedient thing is to say, Lord, I'm out of here. Like, we're not doing this anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And the Lord is going to show you those times. And especially if it's a situation where there's people that you're responsible for. And the Lord says, the obedient thing right now is to take the people you're responsible for and remove them from the situation. That happens, right? But sometimes the Lord is asking us to stay and do the thing that's going to require faith on our part. To wait to see what he is going to do. And in those times, doing nothing is also a choice. And Mordecai reminded her, hey, disobedience is not, a, is not a way out, really, right? Saying, well, Lord, I'm just going to sit here and do nothing. That's not going to save you, right? And it's literally, in her case, it literally wasn't going to save her. She was still going to face the consequences. He said, hey, don't you think that they're going to find out that you're a Jew too? You're not going to miss out on this whole thing. It's going to come for you as well. But we have to remember at times like this that when we're making these decisions, it's not just us taking the risk, right? Okay, the Lord has asked me to take this risk and I don't feel like I can do it because I can't accomplish it. That's not what's going on here. What's going on is the Lord is asking you to allow yourself to be used by him. And does the Lord lose battles? We just sang a song about that. No, he does not, right? So the answer is no. So if the Lord doesn't lose battles, then when we step out in faith, we're allowing the Lord to have victory in our lives. Now, is that always going to come in terms of a circumstance that's going to be overcome that we want? I don't know what the answer is, but I know that the Lord is going to do what he wants to do. I know the Lord is going to win the battle that he's trying to win here. And when we allow him to work, we get to be part of that, which is the best possible place that we could be. Isaiah chapter 54, I'm going to read verse 10, and then I'm going to read 14 through 17. I'm sorry I've been skipping around, but I'm trying to not read massive chunks of text for us. This is a situation where the Lord has been disciplining his people and allowing difficult situations to come to them. But he's speaking to Isaiah and he says in verse 10 of Isaiah 54, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Verse 14, In righteousness you shall be established, you shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. For whoever stirs up strife will you, will, with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall, shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me declares the Lord. So that's what the Lord is doing, right? We're in a situation where we see, hey, the Lord has allowed us to get in trouble and we've received ravagers. And that was the situation that the God's people were in when Isaiah was prophesying. Hey, we're, we're about to get punished and now we are punished. Now what? And the Lord says, yeah, I knew that that was going to happen, but guess what else I can do? I can turn that back around as soon as I decide. And I am a God who has compassion. I'm not a God who likes to let you sit in that situation for very long. I like to win on behalf of my people. That's who God is, right? And if we know that that's who God is and that that God who loves us 
and has compassion on us and doesn't like to see us suffer, right? He's not excited to see us go through difficult times. If that's God's character and that God is also completely in control, then when we make a step of faith in obedience to him, don't we think that he's going to come through for that? Is he going to let you dangle and say, well, you took a step of faith, but I just decided I'm not going to catch you. You'll learn next time that that wasn't very wise. That's not who the Lord is. You take that step of faith and the Lord says, now watch, look good. Now I've been given the opportunity to prove my character. And that's exactly what we're doing. We're letting God have an opportunity to prove who he is, right? When my kids trust me to do something that I've been telling them, no, it's okay, you're going to do fine, you can do it, right? That's, now it's on me and I make sure, right, that I bless them for that because I don't want them to get this idea that, well, I trusted you and then I fell flat on my face, right? That's not how I want them to think about me. And that's not how the Lord wants us to think about him either. So Esther gets brought to this decision in verse 15 and she has to kind of push herself beyond where she's really comfortable. In verse 15, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go. Gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So she steps out in faith. She knows it's a possibility that this doesn't go well, right? That she could, she could literally die. That's the choice that she's facing. But, you know, following the Lord faithfully is not a guarantee of safety for us, right? The end goal here, the place we're all going to get, is we're all going to die in Christ Jesus, right? I'm sorry to be a bummer, but that's where we're going to end up, right? Unless the Lord comes back first, right? That's, that's, that's true. Unless the Lord comes back first and gets us, and that's what we'd prefer, then where we're all going to end up is whether it's sooner or later or in a bad way or in a good way, we're going to be received into the presence of the Lord. And if that's what's going to happen, then... All that we got to do is make sure we do it right, right? That we get there and we accomplish the thing that the Lord has asked us to accomplish. And if that's our end goal, we see Esther stepping out. She doesn't know the outcome, but she's trusting the Lord either way. And I, I've got to ask myself, because I was teaching this to myself this whole week, but I've got to ask all of us, are we stepping out in a way that we're risking something for the Lord? Now, I'm not... I'm not trying to guilt you with that. Now I want you all to go home and sell your houses and like, no, okay, right? Like this has to be something that the Lord is telling you, something that you have the faith to do, right? Because otherwise it's a trip that someone else is laying on you and that's not right. That's not from the Lord. So it's something that the Lord is pointing you towards and you're saying, you know what? I think the Lord is telling me to do that, but that's kind of scary because I don't see how I'm going to do that. Okay. Maybe that's the thing that the Lord wants you to step out and do in faith to see how he's going to come through and do that thing. I don't know what that is for you individually, but I'd like to encourage you it's really easy for us to avoid those places where we know that we're not capable of accomplishing it all on our own because we're kind of afraid sometimes of embarrassing the Lord. You ever notice that? You ever prayed a prayer where you're afraid to embarrass the Lord? So you pray a prayer kind of like, well, Lord, if you would like to do this, that would be great. But if you wouldn't like to do it, here's an easy out for you to not do it and we'll all feel okay. Now, I understand why you do that, right? We're worried that, hey, we don't want the Lord. We don't want this to look bad. We don't want somebody's faith to be shaken. Okay. Let me promise you something. The Lord doesn't get embarrassed. The Lord doesn't make mistakes. You can make mistakes, but it's still not going to embarrass the Lord because that's who the Lord's character. That's the Lord's character. He takes care of it. He has the victory. So we don't have to worry about that. We can just throw ourselves kind of headlong in the direction that we think the Lord is pointing us. And we know that if we're going the wrong way, the Lord will say, oh, okay, that was really exciting, but we're going to go this way instead, right? The Lord is good to protect us from ourselves in that way. But we want to be making sure that when the Lord points us in a direction and says, this is the thing that I want to accomplish with you, it's okay to be impulsive in that direction. If you have heard that from the Lord and you'll start to learn what that feels like, then it's okay to say, all right, we're going to go before we're ready. We're going to go before we're 100% sure how that's going to work out because we want to leave some room for the Lord to work. I'm going to end with 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verses 5-9. through 9. It says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So, if God 
has saved us and given us an inheritance and he's regenerated us and he's done all those things for us. And he's placed his spirit in us and upon us and he's specifically placed us wherever we're at, right? The Lord is in control. So that means that where I'm at right now, where you're at right now, is a place the Lord knew that you were going to be. And if those things are all true, and we really think that God is in control of our situation in those circumstances, then we're able to look at them like Esther and Mordecai had to and say, all right, then what is the Lord going to do here? And we are able to look at that and say, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to bet. <laughs> I'm going to put all of my chips in the middle on God and say, yeah, I think the Lord is going to accomplish something in this situation. Do I always know what it is? No, I don't. And sometimes there's some tragedy involved between here and there, and I understand that, and we've all gone through those situations. But even so, we can still trust that the Lord is going to accomplish something. And if there's something in your heart, let me just end with this. If you've got something in your mind that you're thinking about right now and saying, yeah, I think I know what we're talking about here. I think I know the thing that the Lord is pointing me to do, but I am afraid to step out into it because it would be risky. I'm not sure how it would wind up. Let me encourage you that you, it's okay. You can hear the Holy Spirit. I don't have to do that for you. Tyler doesn't have to do that for you. You don't have to go. You are able to hear the Holy Spirit if you're saved. And that voice that you're hearing from the Lord, you can try that out. You can go for it. And if it's not the Lord, I promise the Lord is going to tell you. He's going to be really gentle and say, nope, nope, that wasn't me. Please don't go that way. And he's going to help you. He's going to, we call that closing a door, right? The Lord's just going to close that door right in front of you and you're going to bump your nose and he's going to say, nope, this other way. And he's going to show you the open door. It's not going to be this massive disaster where, oh, that one time I took a step of faith and it all went wrong from there. I'll never do that again. The Lord doesn't do that. He's going to bless you for your obedience as we take steps of faith in him.